Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Our whole Daily Signal team and the Heritage Communications team has been doing quite a bit of travel a recently. Lot. A lot of travel. A lot. We're all a little tired, <laughs> but it's been fun. But that got me thinking about like different weird travel experiences. And I think everybody has like mm. those random stories or like the nightmares of like running through an airport <laughs> and recently running through an airport in a mask so you don't miss oh. your flight. The worst. The worst. Lauren, are, do you have any like super random bizarre travel stories? You know, I do do a, a quite a bit of travel uh-huh. um, and really nothing too bizarre. But when I was in college, I was on a flight from Minnesota to Denver. I, I, it was a, a layover, right? So Florida, Minnesota, Minnesota to Denver. It was a huge plane. I was the only person on it. Wait, what? Yeah. What time was the flight? Like maybe 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. That is crazy. And so I got to, and it was like a big enough plane. There was first class. So I got, you know. Was this like a couple drinks in the morning? Like I had, you know, basically all the flight attendants just for me. Okay, that's insane. So that was, that was pretty crazy. Wow. I don't know what I would do with that. Like, just move seats around because you could. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's still the only time that I've ever actually sat in first class on an airplane. Was. That's insane. And the only bummer is, I mean, it really isn't that long of a flight. I yeah. kind of wished it was the Florida like the to fall. Minnesota. <laughs> but, but yeah, that was pretty crazy. I mean, That's I, I so had a crazy. couple, like, been snowed in on planes or... Yeah. But... Yeah, those squad travel experiences. Well, yeah, I've never had anything close to oh, that. Well, I mean, knock that's on a every very piece unique of wood experience. You know. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I've been like upgraded at first class once, nice. which was cool, but like, yeah. yeah, never had a whole plane to myself. Well, I, well done. We had a colleague yesterday at lunch tell us that he was on a plane from Baltimore down to Virginia Beach uh-huh. and the plane took off in Baltimore. It was snowing, got all the way down to Virginia Beach. The snow had moved down to Virginia Beach. (laughs) The the runway iced over. So the poor plane had to go Go all the way back to Baltimore because there's no real airport in between. That's so So sad. So then he got snowed in. That is so sad. Wow. That's tragic. (laughs) I think this was a pointless flight. Yeah. Do you ever strategize, uh, like, when there's turbulence? Do you ever, like, think about, like, okay, what would I do? Like, if this plane starts going down, how am I going to handle myself? Yeah. Am I the only one that has those thoughts? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I guess so, like when the plane has turbulence, I've flown enough and I've been on like some really, you know, those little puddle jumpers between mm-hmm. a lot of them between like D.C. and Philly or D.C. and Pittsburgh. The, you'll take these like little 24 seat planes, it feels like. And those things just the whole time are like up and down turbulence. Yeah. And so <laughs> I feel like now when I hit turbulence, I'm like, eh, yeah, nothing. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is like, you don't know the day nor the hour. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> what's, what's your plan though? Um. Well, so I've always thought about like, okay, if, if you could kind of like organize people on the plane, if there would be some way to save the children. <laughs> How do you save children from a burning? I don't know. This is what I've tried to strategize. Wow. Like, I don't know how you would. But I'm like, if everyone somehow coordinated together, like... Like jumping up and down to like... I don't know. Go I don't know. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. Um, I'll let you know when I come up with my really thorough plan to save all the children on board a plane as it's going down. We, we have a, like, live blog the next time we fly where, like, you're like... It's turbulence, and you're, like, awake, strategizing, and I'm, like, asleep. <laughs> it's fine. It'll yeah. be fine. Well, unfortunately, yeah, obviously I've never gone down on a plane, so so far so good. 
All right, Lauren, go ahead and let us know what we have queued up on today's show. Up on today's Problematic Women, Virginia just got a crash course on rogue prosecutors out in Los Angeles. We break down why some district attorneys now have a whole list of crimes they simply won't prosecute. Plus, Gloria Taylor just got back from the southern border, so she's going to tell us what she saw, what the situation is really like down there, and Easter's around the corner. We take some time to remember the significance of the holiday. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are so often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. When a criminal commits a crime, a prosecutor prosecutes that crime. Seems simple enough. Asking a judge to issue a jail sentence or to complete required programs, things like that. Prosecutors are meant to act on behalf of the victims who are affected by the actions of the criminal. The prosecutor's job is to uphold justice and play a role in making sure there are consequences for a criminal's actions. In every state, there are lead prosecutors known as district attorneys. And many states have a district attorney for every county in that state. Uh, And then there could be hundreds or even thousands of prosecutors working under that DA, standing for district attorney, depending upon how big that county is. So uh, the district attorney, he sets the prosecution standards. But there's a new trend among some district attorneys in America where they're intentionally not prosecuting to the full extent of the law. Some people call these district attorneys progressive prosecutors, but here at the Heritage Foundation, we call them rogue prosecutors. And we do that because these men and women are really giving criminals a pass to just continue committing crimes because they're not being prosecuted for those crimes. Rogue prosecutors believe that the criminal justice system is systemically racist and that the whole system has to be radically transformed. Boston, Manhattan, Chicago, Baltimore, and Los Angeles are just a few cities in America where these rogue prosecutors are in power, and they're totally changing how these crimes are prosecuted. Virginia, you traveled all the way from D.C. to Los Angeles to talk with local leaders and associate prosecutors to learn how they are being affected by L.A. District Attorney George Gascon. What did you find out? Yeah, so it was a really interesting. Um, before going to Los Angeles, I, you know, I knew I was taking this trip to go um, really uh, learn about rogue prosecutors and specifically the rogue prosecutor in Los Angeles, George Gascon. And um, I kind of gave myself a, a crash course on prosecutors and rogue prosecutors before going. And then I learned so much more while I was there. Uh, but it was interesting just hearing people in that community um, talk about really just how frustrated they are by the situation on the ground. So George Gascon, he was um, elected as the district attorney back in 2020. And on his very first day in office, he put out this list of 13 crimes that he just said he wouldn't prosecute. So that included uh, or includes things like driving without a valid license, Uh, possession of drugs, loitering in order to commit prostitution, resisting arrest, trespassing, and the list goes on and on. But like all of these things that are 
are, are misdemeanor crimes, but still, like, if there's no consequences for, obviously really affects a community. Like, if a 14-year-old knows that they can just go drive the car without a license and there's no repercussions for doing that, obviously it makes the streets less safe. I, I sat down um, – and talked with a mayor of a small town. Well, it's not that small of a town. It's a city outside of Los Angeles called Whittier. Really, really cute Main Street. <laughs> um, and the mayor there, Joe Vinatiera, um, he said, you know, for people in his community, like they don't have a ton of really violent crime. But what they're seeing under Gascon's policies is like more and more people um, are you know becoming victims of robberies mm. and like Amazon packages are getting stolen off their porch. And most of that crime is driven by people who are trying to fund a drug addiction. Mm. It's all funded by drugs. But what happens is that then if if those crimes aren't prosecuted, those individuals who are addicted to drugs – uh, they're not going to court, so there's no like mandated programs. So usually if someone who is addicted to drugs and is doing crime as a result, they might be required by a judge to um, take a, a rehab program and to get help that they need. But when they're not being prosecuted, they're not going to court, so they're not getting um, those programs. They're not getting the help that they need, so they just keep committing the crimes. And they keep suffering from the same issues, and then the people in the community – Obviously, it's starting to feel less safe for them um, when, you know, this crime continues to go up and up and up. So, like, really interesting, I think, to hear just at, like, the local level. Mm. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, like, I could see how that could happen in my community. Um, it probably is happening in your community. Yeah, here exactly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Be aware of your Amazon packages, people. Take them off your porches quickly. <laughs> well, and it, it just – it shows that without even – any legislation, the left is trying to take over these laws and they have they don't even want to give the justice system the benefit of the doubt. Right. Because that's the whole reason why you don't automatically get sentenced to a crime and you have to go through the courts and you have to have a trial because there are circumstances where somebody is so fueled by drugs and the compassionate thing is don't throw them in prison, but put them in a program, find another way that they can repay their debts to society, mm-hmm. uh, but to just go ahead and put out a huge list of, hey, these crimes, you can go commit them, it, it really affects communities. And I, you see these with all these smash and grabs mm-hmm. that you know a g- large group of people will just run and steal, and they know they can't steal more than you know $600, and, and so they go and they steal $599, and they come out, and they're, they're in the clear, and it really terrorizes communities, and I don't understand what the end goal of these leftist prosecutors are. Yeah, well, and I think that was my question over and over is like the the why. And it really is this this desire to totally fundamentally change our criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And I think on like the farthest reaches of this movement um, is the idea that we should just get rid of prisons entirely. Um, and I it's it's really hard in so many ways, I think, to follow that logic. Um, it's like, well, I don't understand how a society could totally function without that. Um, but it's it's this deeply held belief that, OK, um, you know, prisons are, are like um, the plantations essentially of mm. today. And they're so racist. And so we have to just totally get rid of them. Um, and I think, you know, on both sides of the aisle, there's agreement of like, OK, you know, there's a level of criminal justice reform that's needed. Um, I spoke with one gentleman um, who's a city council member in Pico Rivera, Andrew Laura, and 
know, he said he was like, yeah, he, he's a Democrat. He's like, I agree. Like, we need reforms. But to do it all at once and so radically, he, he was like, I'm so tired of of these politicians making my community a Petri dish for their social experiments. Those were the words that he used. I was like, wow, like just from the perspective of someone that's like, okay, we're trying to build like a a strong and healthy community. Um, And you have politicians that are like, well, I have an idea. Let's see how this works out. He's like, it's not working out well. (laughs) Well, and how typical of the left, they want to get rid of crime. And instead of actually working with communities and working to make people better and and help people in places that they need it, they just – get rid of the sentence, mm-hmm. right? And that doesn't actually get rid of the crime. They're not actually solving the problem. They're sweeping the problem under the rug. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we're seeing um, in Los Angeles and in these other cities where there's rogue prosecutors is this stuff is just kind of being swept aside. But fortunately, there are a lot of people who are standing up like these local leaders who I talked to and saying, wait a second, um, this isn't okay. We have to do something about it. Because remember, this is in California. These are not a bunch of Conservatives. Yeah, no, these are like all Democrats, and they're all saying this is too far. This is too much. Um, and, you know, speaking, I think, of people putting their foot down and saying, wait a second, I think we're also starting to see that in places like all along the southern border where mm-hmm. um, we're seeing immigration just skyrocket as more and more migrants are, are trying to come across the border. Um, and one of our colleagues, Gloria Taylor, was actually just down at the border so stay tuned because uh, we're going to bring Gloria in to share with us a little bit about her experience and what she saw firsthand at the border. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about a new podcast we have here at the Heritage Foundation, and that is the Kevin Roberts podcast. This week, Dr. Roberts speaks with the one and only Terry Schilling about the boy crisis and why we really need to help our men and men need to stand up and become better members of society. We talked with Brenda Hafer a couple weeks ago about her article on this same topic. It really, I think if you love problematic women, you're going to love this episode. So it comes out Wednesday. So it's already out by the time you listen to this. Kevin Roberts Show, anywhere you get your podcast, make sure you check it out. Check it out. Welcome back. On his first day in office, President Joe Biden ended a lot of the policies President Donald Trump put in place to manage immigration at our southern border. Construction of the border wall was brought to a halt and thousands more migrants began crossing the border. Just since October, there have already been 940,000, yes, 940 thousand apprehensions of migrants at the southern border. And this spring, Border Patrol say that they are expected to be apprehending as many as a record-breaking 800 migrants a Mm. day. So joining us today to explain what is really going on at the southern border is the one and only Gloria Taylor. She is the Communications Manager for National Security and Foreign Policy here at the Heritage Foundation and a great friend of the show. Gloria, thanks for being here. So happy to be back. (laughs) So you just got back from the southern border. Welcome back. That was your first trip to the border, right? It was. I was wholly unprepared for what (laughs) I saw. I mean, we've been hearing the rhetoric, you know, on TV. We've been watching Fox do a great job reporting on what's going down there. But whoa. And if you're unprepared, like nobody could be prepared. Yeah. (laughs) You know, this is your job (laughs) to be aware of what's happening. Exactly. (laughs) I I think it's just one of those things where you see stuff on the news, but when you actually go there, 
in person, it hits so much mm. differently mm-hmm. um, when you're talking to the folks that are directly impacted by what is going on, um, when you're seeing just like the travesty of what is left behind. It it puts people and faces and, and towns to all the numbers that you're seeing. So mm. it was it was really cool. We got to see the wall, which was super exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, was it big also, and beautiful? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so we actually we saw the Texas wall, mm. not Trump's wall, because Biden obviously stopped construction of Trump's wall. But it was as tall as I could have ever dreamed and <laughs> as beautiful as I ever could have thought. I literally stood there and I was like, I touched the wall today. <laughs> like this is a core life moment. <laughs> So let's start with the basics. Where exactly were you at the border and who were you there with? Yes. So we flew into McAllen, Texas. So this is South Texas. So think like really close to the Gulf of Mexico, um, like Southeast Texas, super hot. Um, And this is what? April? Is it mm-hmm. April? Mm-hmm. And it was already... Is it April? <laughs> it's April. What day is it? I don't even know anymore. Um, literally, it was already blazing. And I just can't even imagine what it's like to be crossing out there in like August, June, when you were just psychotically dehydrated and super yeah, hot. Yeah. I mean, you were going from a hotel where I'm sure you had plenty of bottles of water. Yeah. Can you imagine just... Yeah. It's like we, they're telling us, you know, how people literally die of dehydration because mm, you so don't even sad. realize you're getting dehydrated because it was dry heat we were just standing outside i literally drank like 12 bottles of water and didn't even you know i was just so dehydrated all day yeah Mm. um but yes so we went with the texas public policy foundation friend of heritage where we stole our current president (laughs) from um and then down there with us we had trump's um acting dhs secretary his um commissioner of customs and border protection and then the chief border patrol agent so Mm. the guys that were literally responsible for building the wall mm-hmm. and giving Biden the most secure border we've ever had. Mm. So it's, it was really interesting to watch them go down. They've been to the border however mm-hmm. many times, but it was it was interesting to see them watch all of this unfold, mm. given they've spent their career trying to not have the situation happen. So what what stuck out to you first? We get there. Our first stop is at a water treatment facility on the banks of the Rio Grande, you know, mm-hmm. the river where everyone's crossing. And we're getting a brief from the owner of this facility, who's also part of the South Texas Property Rights Association. And he's explaining how, you know, his men have been shot at by the cartel, literally just across the river. We can see Mexico. And so we're hearing about the cartel's operations. They take folks out on boat tours. Philip, um, one of our colleagues, went out on a boat tour and he said, I've never seen so much trash in a river there are pigs like walking around it smelled so foul and that's what they're bringing people through it's like one this is an environmental disaster that i would love to hear the left talk about clearly they don't care you know they're paying no attention to this um and hearing about all the different tactics with which the Mm. cartel uses to evade border patrol evade law enforcement um one thing that was really interesting, the owner here was telling us about how his men had been shot at normally just to say, the cartel's here. We want to, you know, bring fentanyl. We want to bring drugs over. We're going to bring people over. So, like, look the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they do that, obviously, Border Patrol is aware of what's going on. And then if Border Patrol is around, the cartel will literally walk up next to the workers, you know, whether that's on a ranch, whether that's, you know, mm-hmm. at this facility we were at, blend in. And then when Border Patrol leaves, they leave and carry on about their nefarious business. And over and over and over again, we're hearing stories like that from different ranchers, from different business owners of just how 
they're literally like left to their own devices just to hope the cartel doesn't come after them, just to be like, we're going to look the other way and let them do what they're doing so we don't get shot at and killed. And just how normal that was, was so shocking. Like this is just a way of life they've adapted to that they should never have been left to have to deal with in the first place. Absolutely insane. And I think when people are thinking about the Rio Grande River, they're probably thinking, you know, the Mississippi where it's a half mile wide and it would take you a half an afternoon to swim to one side or the other. This part of the river that the water treatment facility was on. Can you paint a picture for our audience about how big the river was? I'm literally the worst person to ask when it comes to like if you, if I was in a stadium of like 10,000 people, I'd be like, oh, there's like 500 people in here. So it's like, don't take my like words for real. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it just stones throw. Yeah. Wow. You know, um, and there's you know obviously a lot of different points that we walked by that were popular crossing mm-hmm. points. They have names. You know, mm-hmm. Julio Rosas, a reporter for Town Hall, who's done a lot of awesome work on this, was there with us. And he was telling us about, you know, the different popular crossing mm-hmm. points across the river that are a lot more narrow, but even some of them are super precarious. You know, people drown, people, you know, get off and then they are, you know, run into the brush and then, you know, they die of dehydration or the the weirdest thing that um, I didn't even know was happening is this drive away situation. So we're finding out from law enforcement how teenagers are being recruited from TikTok and Facebook like American citizen teenagers that, you know, live in these border uh-huh. counties to basically, hey, buy the cartels to go pick up illegal immigrants and like drive them far away from the border, like into the United States. And so these kids, you know, think they're going to make a quick buck doing this. And then their goal is to drive really fast, get away. And then obviously, you know, there's Border Patrol agents, you know, all along the highways scouting mm-hmm. for what's going on. And then we saw so much footage from Texas DPS mm-hmm. um, of these crashes and these people are driving like psychotically recklessly yeah. to get away from the police. And then eventually they'll teenagers just driving. Te- teenagers yeah. driving recklessly. They don't want to get caught by the police. So they have no regard for the lives of, you know, kids, moms, yeah. families that are in the back of these cars that may or may not be smuggled into human mm-hmm. trafficking. You know, they may be let go. Who knows? Um, and they're driving recklessly. The police are chasing after them. And then the cars crash and you know, the car's on fire. And, you know, there's women and kids in the back. Or, there's no record of who's in the car. There's no record of who's in the car. We've seen videos of, you know, these families literally um, in boxes, like, you know, nailed in boxes. Oh um, and then there's been incidences in the past couple of weeks of one of these like reckless drivers of, you know, the, the migrant caravans crashing into like a grandma and her granddaughter oh. that are just, you know, going across town and, you know, get caught up in the middle of one of these chases. Oh so it's just heartbreaking. It, not only is like it obviously tragic for, you know, American citizens who get caught in the middle of this, but like this is literally the most inhumane way to be bringing people like across the border. Like there's nothing humane about this open border agenda from the Biden administration. Mm. Well, and I think that was so hard to see that for the perspective of you know, a majority of people who are coming across want to work or, they, you know, they do want a better life. We obviously have, you know, folks that are not in that situation. We have no idea where they came from. What? We're going to have a million gotaways in the first two years of the Biden administration. That's 153 different countries where we literally don't know where these people are coming from or who mm-hmm. they are. Um, so it, it, it was just it, so much evil. It just sounds like mass chaos. Yes, mass chaos. And I think I, I said at one point I looked over to Philip and said, I feel like I'm in a war zone. Wow. You know, just the the videos we saw of, you know, what Border Patrol agents um, and then this is not even Border Patrol agents. This is Texas, you know, troopers, 
you know, state troopers, what they've been, you know, pulled into as part of Operation Lone Star, the ch- they're the ones that are like chasing people through the brush, getting shot at um, in these car crashes. It, it literally felt like a war zone. Mm-hmm. Like, this does this not even feel real. Yeah. Well, and like you say, Texans have kind of taken things into their own hands. Yeah. They're trying to say, okay, if, if the Biden administration isn't going to do anything, we're, we're going to step up. Um, so I want to play a clip from um, one of your reporting videos, Gloria, down there. Just Her sharing many great reporting videos. Many, many. <laughs> Check out the Daily Signal Instagram to follow along. Um, all the reels. <laughs> all the excellent reels. So this one was you at the at the border wall in Texas. So let's go ahead and roll that clip. Hey everyone, we are here at the border wall. Um, just a few minutes ago, through this gap in the wall back here, a uh, big uh, truck drove by. I'm going to pick up uh, migrants, and we don't know if we're going to expect to see them come back through. There's border patrol stationed, obviously, but um, what's interesting about this segment of the wall that we're at, this is actually um, manufactured, paid for, and constructed by Texas. So this is part of their Operation Lone Star to secure the border when we obviously have not seen that um, effort from the Biden administration. So this just continues all the way down and we found out that about 98% of this segment of uh, Texas's construction of the border wall is complete. And so they have told us once you continue down here a, a little bit of a ways, there's a gap in the wall. So give us a little bit more background here. What What is this project that Texas has taken on? Yes. So this is called Operation Lone Star. And basically, the governor of Texas was like, well, the Biden administration is not even negligent. They are just flat out completely not enforcing the law. They're not protecting the citizens of the U.S. So Texas, like, we're going to take this into our own hands. So they're deploying large amounts of, you know, state troopers to then be on the roads monitoring the Mm -hmm. things we were just talking about, these, you know, driveaways, as well as they said, well, we're just going to start constructing our own wall um, in Texas. We're going to continue what the Trump administration was doing. And so they are you know, in the process of doing this in the in the sector that we were at, it was almost 98% complete. And it looks a lot like Trump's mm-hmm. border wall. And it was very cool, the folks that we had with us. You know, that was the first time they had gone down there and seen the Texas wall. And they were super curious to see, okay, are they doing it the same way we did? Is it the you know, same type of construction? Um, does it look good? Is it is it what we thought it was going to be? And they were really impressed by what Texas was doing. And it's interesting. They were leasing all of the land that they're building this wall on as opposed to where you some of the, the federal projects was uh, invoking eminent domain. So Texas is trying to avoid any eminent domain as possible. We're down there. We're seeing the construction. It's almost completely full except for this one you know narrow spot where there's a road that comes through where eventually there's going to be like a gate. And the gate's not there yet. So what did we see as soon as we touched down? A big bus, an empty bus, driving through mm-hmm. the gate down towards the river to go pick up a uh, you know, big caravan of migrants and to, you know, bring them back into the country. Mm. So it was, it was really wild just to see that happening as we were there. Yeah. So then we, you know, walked along the wall, um, you know, a little bit farther down where we were. Um, there's a gap between where the federal construction ended and Texas's construction started. So um, I was so struck by how huge the wall was, so intimidating mm. it was. And I think it's one of those things where you're like, oh, wow, I'm going to think twice before I'm going to climb all the way up there and maybe fall to my death. Mm. And we, you know, from some people who you know don't support the wall, you know, they made the walls don't work. You know, they can dig around it, they can climb over it. But I think one thing that we learned about that I, you know, was not as aware of before mm-hmm. was the fact that you have that wall and there's a lot of you know drones that are you know mm-hmm. capturing abovehand what's going on. When you have the wall set up like that, you give a one border patrol 
agent the ability to cover far more territory because mm-hmm. they can then get a heads up. OK, something's going on over here. It slows the folks mm-hmm. down um, and then you know, they're then able to go make the interdiction. Whereas, you know, if there's no wall, you have no idea. You you have to have so much more staff down there being able to patrol that certain area. And right now we don't even have agents out patrolling because they're so caught up processing the hundreds of people that are coming through. And what is the Biden administration? Their solution to this is, oh, well, let's just, you know, process more people faster. Mm-hmm. That's not a solution. <laughs> That's just like an open invitation. Mm-hmm. So it was just f- frustrating to the nth degree, everything that we saw. And what, what do you think this says about the Biden administration that this was a day one priority for them was to stop wall construction. I mean, you look at everything that they did that first day. They stopped the Keystone Pipeline. They opened our borders. How does the Biden administration even continue to justify these policies? There is no justification Mm. for the policies. The Biden administration literally won't even go down there and talk to these people. The costs incurred by ranchers, business owners from their property being destroyed from having to find dead migrants in Mm. their Mm. fields. I mean, Mm. this is just heartbreaking. Mm. And when you hear from the left, oh, you know, you conservatives are so heartless. You don't want people to come here and have a better life. The way that y'all are doing this is literally so unbelievably inhumane, lacks care and empathy and regard for the lives of these people and your own citizens. Mm-hmm. So there's there's no defending this whatsoever. And it's about to get so much worse. You know, we, we were at some of these popular crossings points and didn't see too many people coming over. Why? Because it's common knowledge amongst mm-hmm. the immigrants. Oh, we're just waiting for May 23rd. We're waiting for Title 42. And then we're all going to come over at one time. That's the last piece of any remnant of some level of border security we may even have. And that's about to go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that was put in place during COVID. Yes. As really a way um, for Border Patrol to say, OK, because of the pandemic, we're not going to allow you cross to cross the border. And like you say, Gloria, now Biden has said we're getting rid of that. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of the, the last uh, the last little stone holding up this big wall that seems like it's about to tumble. And what hypocrites. They're, they're thinking about extending the mask mandates on planes because COVID isn't over, right? <laughs> Philadelphia is putting another mask mandate for indoors up in their city, but the COVID is over at the border. Yeah. And that's why I love what Governor Abbott's trying to do is put these migrants on buses and yes. send them up to D.C. And I like the Biden administration is now is like, you can't do that to somebody against their will. So you can vaccinate somebody against their will so they can keep their job. But you can't take these people who are illegal in our country who are moving into these these communities who can't handle anymore and send them up to a city like D.C. So these yeah. Politicians can see what the, the actual, is yeah, the actual it consequences are. It speaks so much to just the coastal elites, the elite governing class mm-hmm. that is completely removed from the problem. Again, they won't even go down there and talk to these people because they know like they will be held to account for what they're doing. And so, you know what Governor Abbott says? If you're not going to come see this problem and what it's doing to our people, I'm going to bring the problem to you. Mm-hmm. Kudos to him. Fight back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't care what the media says. Something mm-hmm. has to be done. Yep. All right. Well, we could keep going. We could oh, just yeah. let Gloria keep ranting. <laughs> I could just go for an hour. Just go. That's not poor, even all poor of it. Gloria. Her policy is like Afghanistan, Ukraine, big tech, border policy. <laughs> There's not much going on in the oh, world right now. Well, yeah. Never a dull moment. <laughs> we were talking about Easter earlier. I mean, Gloria, she's like, I just really hope World War Three doesn't start during my Easter break because I need a weekend. Aww. My last two vacations have been when Afghanistan happened and then 
when Russia invaded Ukraine. So <laughs> I'm like, what, what's going to happen this weekend? Ooh, you know? <laughs> well, speaking of Easter, uh, we're going to take a minute and just talk about the significance of the holiday. A little bit, a little bit of a lighter subject <laughs> here. <a> little bit. <laughs> Even though actually it is probably one of the deepest, darkest. True. Yeah. But well, then it gets into one of the happiest. But followed by Radiant Joy. Yes. Mm. <laughs> so we're, we're here. We're in the middle of, of uh Passion Week, um, and we're coming up on, of course, the time where we we remember the the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. So, like for you all, as as you think about Easter, like the way that you celebrate Easter personally, what what is its significance for you all? That's why I love the entire week of Easter. Right, I, I love Palm Sunday and remembering the story there of how the crowd, you know, really accepted and, and praised Jesus and um, were so excited about the miracles that he had just done. And then you go through th- Thursday, um, you know, Monday Thursday, where where Jesus did the communion with the disciples. Um, and then you go into Good Friday, which is such a solemn day. And you're really able to not only read these stories, but really emotionally process these stories um, throughout the week. And then go and then it allows that celebration on Sunday just to to be so much more of a celebration when you understand, you know, th- th- how dark and, and terrible but also wonderful Good Friday is. Um, and I, I just have always really not – it's hard because you don't want to, like, look forward to feeling that. But at the same time, I think it allows you to grow your faith and really take time to understand the sacrifice that was made. Mm-hmm. I think it is so important to be able to sit in grief and to sit mm-hmm. in suffering. Like the Bible talks about that. Like mm-hmm. Jesus wept. Grief is real. Yeah. He said, you know, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. Yeah. You know, like we are called to sit in that. Um, and then when we are able to then sit in that, you then realize, oh, wow, how deep is my need mm. for a Savior? Like how mm deep mm. like how deep is this sin and the penalty mm. that like was to be paid for it that then wow for the joy set before him like mm-hmm. he endured the cross mm. and so as i believers it's it's so cool to be able to hold deep sorrow deep suffering deep understanding of the depth of our sin but also wow the hope that we now have and the joy of what we've been set free from mm. yeah yeah it i love i think kind of the slowness in a way that that builds yeah. up mm-hmm. to this great celebration that is easter morning but like you all were saying, like it's it's this time of like really taking time to I think slow down and reflect mm-hmm. on okay what has Christ done for me for my community for my family for the world um, and knowing like okay Sunday's coming yep. Yep. Um, but like let me remember what Christ suffered and yep. went through um, it's yeah it's a beautiful journey to get to go on every year mm-hmm. I, I love that I think it then reminds me too like we say at Easter you know. Sunday's coming, Sunday's mm-hmm. coming. And literally we can say that for the rest of our lives of yeah. heaven's coming. Yeah. You know, we can sit here and, you know, in a period of, you know, darkness or whatever, not nearness to the Lord. We know heaven is coming. And like yeah. our ultimate hope is what was done on the cross. Yeah. 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 So good. Do you all have any like special or fun Easter memories from uh, either recent years or when you were a kid? So I don't remember this, but I am told this every Easter. I've already been told this. So uh, I have two younger sisters. Um, we're all about three years apart. So this is before my very youngest was born. So I was probably about six years old, and my youngest sister was probably about three years old. And we were doing an Easter egg hunt in my grandparents' backyard. Mm-hmm. And my youngest sister was just out there going crazy looking for eggs, right? And I 
at six years old was smart enough to remember, to to think up. I don't have to look for the eggs. She's looking for the eggs. So I just followed her, and whenever she wasn't looking, I would take the eggs out of her basket oh, and put it oh, into mine. <laughs> and I just think... <laughs> so ornery. <laughs> and I, I get told about this. All, I have no no recollection at all. But and that's what I, you hey, say. Work smarter, not harder. Uh, that's a, I mean, I think it's just Steal, really why show. not? I mean... <laughs> We don't prosecute criminals anymore. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That doesn't probably count. Not. Only if I steal 20 eggs. 25, I'd probably get yeah, in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as it's under 25, it's fine. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, Easter baskets were a big deal in my house growing mm. up. And I think my dad took special pride in finding these insane hiding spots. So like, it mm. got pretty competitive yes. where mm. it's like, okay, dad, <laughs> like, we're, we're kids. Like, <laughs> I'm just saying, I think we need, like, adult Easter egg hunts because that would be really fun. Like, maybe we do this in the office. Yeah. Gloria, if you plan it, I'll come. So. Yeah. Well, don't, there's I'm an episode of Gilmore Girls where they hide Easter eggs and um, one person hides them so well that they can't find them. And then the whole town smells like rotten eggs for a week. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm worried that that's what would happen is, as adults. Oh, no, I would get like the plastic glitter eggs, oh, okay. you know, <laughs> with like candy on the inside or confetti. <laughs> that's so great. Confetti eggs. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we hope that you all have an amazing Easter. Um, but we're not done yet. Stay tuned because up next, we're going to crown our problematic woman of the week. Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you all about a great way you can stay in the know on all the news The Daily Signal covers. Social media. The Daily Signal has an active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are constantly posting news stories, clips from interviews, videos, and more across all our social platforms. Follow The Daily Signal on social media so you can get all the latest content from reels on Instagram to video clips on Facebook and political commentary on Twitter. And now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic of the week. Crown goes to Alabama Governor Kay Ivey. Last week, Governor Ivey took steps to protect kids from transgender ideology. She signed a bill that makes it a felony for medical professionals to provide gender, quote unquote, affirming care to minors. The bill states that it is issued to, quote, prohibit the performance of a medical procedure or the prescription of medicine upon or to a minor child that is intended to alter the minor child's gender or delay puberty. In other words, you can't give someone under 18 puberty-blocking drugs or sex chain hormones, and you can't perform a surgery on them to remove body parts or make them present as another gender. So she signed this bill just after President Joe Biden's Justice Department sent a letter to all state attorney generals telling them that they could be in violation of civil rights law if they prevent minors from receiving quote, gender-affirming care. And what is gender-affirming care? Well, it's puberty blockers, it's sex hormones, and it's surgeries that literally alter or remove body parts. So I just love that Governor Ivy, she she's not bending a knee to Biden mm. and these far-left policies, and instead she's standing up for kids. Um, you know, and somewhere, somewhere between 61% to 98% of kids who struggle with gender dysphoria they will grow out of it. And often the the fix or the solve 
is puberty. It's letting them go through puberty and have those natural hormones sit in. So I love that she's taking a stand for kids. You know, we can debate about what adults are and aren't allowed to do, what they should be able to do. Don't mess with our kids. Yeah, I love it. And it's just it's more important. Every week we talk about this and every week we say that it is important for us to be talking about this because we can't let the left win on this one. We are now getting it's not about tax policy. It's it's about our children and our children really suffering and, and not being able to have children in the future. This is the issue. We need to draw a line in the sand. And Absolutely. and kudos to Governor Ivey for, for putting this into law. Mm-hmm. And Gloria, thank you so much for joining the show today. We've loved having you here. Yes. Happy Very problematic, as always. Always. <laughs> always. <laughs> and with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a wonderful Easter. We'll see you right back here next week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. To keep up with PW throughout the week, follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.